house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Welcome to the This Head Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that will sit here waiting patiently while Meg Ryan maps out the geography of her southern accent. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here with my co-host, senior writer for Decider.com, Joe Reed. Hey, Chris. Good morning. We're like Freaky Friday here. We are. We, uh, We're switching we it up on. We like to keep our listeners, you know, on their toes for what kind of changes we'll make. So that's right. I might be taking the lead on this one. Um, once again, this is the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast. Every week here, we are going to be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had big Academy Award aspirations. And for one reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. This week, we are going back in time for a Ridley Scott historical epic. No, not that one. Not that one either. We're here to talk about the Christopher Columbus slow-mo heavy epic starring Gerard Depardieu, 1492 Conquest of Paradise. 1492 being the running time of this film. This movie. <sighs> it's a, it was a long haul. It's I think we decided movie. to do this movie without realizing how long and lugubrious this movie would be. Which is short-sighted on our part because there's nothing about the concept nor the talent involved nor the uh, anything about this movie that makes you feel like oh that'll be like a brief zippy like yeah. jaunt through like no it we should have like, known better we should have and honestly i'm i will be happy to talk to talk about it but like um it, yeah it's it takes a minute it really does uh it sits with it sits with its french accented uh columbus which we'll get into that for sure definitely um okay so why did we choose this movie other than the fact that when i pitched it out we both laughed for a good five minutes <laughs> just remembering the title i think we were just going through titles and at some point one of us was like 1492 1492 conquest of paradise and we both like plotsed for like several seconds so yeah we totally lost it and then it, that kind of is a good or not always a good barometer but this was at least a, a good indication that we were on to a proper title to do but what are some other reasons joe for our listeners that we would pick this movie so we should probably caveat at the beginning that like we weren't part of the oscar conversation then like i was in grade school you were probably i was a solid five years old okay (laughs) and a worldly five so really you were like i want to see that new ridley scott movie i was like this looks this trailer looks incredible i was very into legend um oh i was super into legend anything that was scary yeah um i've never seen legend i should um 
I feel like Ridley Scott's the prime mover here. You mentioned um, what before when we were uh, off mic at one point, you mentioned Thelma and Louise, which was just a year previous yeah. where this is his follow up to Thelma and Louise for listeners, which he got a best director nomination for, but his it was first. not a best picture nominee, which is horseshit. Um, it's one of the best movies. I mean, that's a very, actually a very strong year. I think two of my all time favorite movies are that year being silence of the lambs and JFK. And they were both Best Picture nominees, so I, it's it's hard for me to take too much of an issue with the 1991 Oscars. But um, Thelma and Louise should have been a Best Picture nominee. It was so good. It was also like a huge talking point of that year, back when like the monoculture was more of a thing, and like the big talking point movies, like JFK, obviously was Silence of the Lambs was, um, but really Beauty and the Beast also was. That was a good Best Picture year. It's a great Man. year jeepers we don't talk about that enough like what were the other two it was bugsy and what it was the prince of tides of course of course it was which was another again huge talking point the barbara streisand angle of it all the fact that she didn't get a best director nomination um yeah that was yeah so this was a best picture year where four out of those five movies at the very least were like huge talking points and it's not like bugsy was any slouch in terms of giving you know people things to bounce off of so we don't talk about the 1991 best picture race enough um to piggyback off of what you're saying of how great that year was and then we move into 1992 1992 is actually a really great and very interesting oscar year that we'll get into um it may not be as great for best picture but when you look at the spread of it it's pretty exciting um so this is also kind of an interesting year to look at. Yes. Um, well, and I brought up that caveat a little bit because it's like, I, I can't say for sure that there was that like 1492 was ever considered a front runner for Oscar, let's say, but like everything about it screams prestige and screams, you know, important. And then you add to that a director who was just coming off of a best director nominee nomination and sort of maybe felt like oh and now he's due in best picture because Thelma and Louise felt a little bit snubbed well and you also have Gerard Depardieu at the lead too who was two years out from a best actor nom for um green card no actually he won the globe for green card and right. the same year was nominated for Cyrano for de Bergerac Cyrano. yes you're right you're right yeah, won the Globe, though, for Green Card. Like, he was a hugely popular... Like, it's funny to think of, like, if you only know him as the, like, lout who got kicked off of an airplane or whatever the hell that was a few years ago, like, he was a hugely popular and, like, weirdly, like, sex symbol international actor. Like, yeah. there was a whole lot of stuff going on around Gerard Depardieu. This is right at his peak, too. So you're looking at it towards, like, an Oscar trajectory, too, because he already had that one leading nomination and then was in this giant epic from a freshly nominated major director at that time. Yeah. So Ridley Scott, up till this point, I think his career is very interesting because we know him so much as, like, he's this hugely prolific director who directs so much. Like, it's not all good. But we know him as this guy who like just has so much output. He's had since 2000. It's something like 15 films in the 17 years. It's it's That's actually insane. It's, it's insane. especially it's, insane for the type of movies that he does on the scale that he does his movies. Because there's a few intimate movies in there, like a good year, but like he does 
big budget movies the martian and prometheus and robin hood and yeah not filmed domestically like these are his movies are huge productions right but this was only his i want to say seventh movie he had done alien and blade runner in 79 and 82 which really had like set his reputation as this kind of sci-fi director and then legend in 85 is along those same lines but then he does I think probably the two least known movies in his filmography, which is someone to watch over me in 1987, which is this like not quite Cinemax worthy, but like late night HBO, like Tom Berenger, Mimi Rogers. She's a witness to something. I want to say it's one of those like romantic lawyer, like entanglement things. You know what I mean? They, they used to make a lot of like sexy thriller adult thing. Um, and then a movie called Black Rain in 1985, which is like Michael Douglas is a cop in Japan and like playing by his own rules. Um, and then you get right into then Thelma and Louise in 1991. So really, by the time you get to 92 and 1492 Conquest of Paradise, he is mostly known for Alien and Blade Runner. And then this like switch to Thelma and Louise, which he does a great job with, but he doesn't really have a whole ton of ownership over that movie. Right. Like Callie Corey is like the screenwriter for that movie. That's a lot, you know, the feminist angle for that movie sort of dictated that Ridley Scott's contribution wasn't quite authorial on that. He wasn't, you know, he was the auteur vision, but it was, there was a lot of sharing of uh, credit on that and rightly so. And then, so we get into 1492 and I feel like this is, Ridley Scott kind of this is what the nineties into the two thousands would sort of be like for Ridley Scott. Although this particular movie has a lot of bombast to it and it feels at times like Ridley Scott, the Ridley Scott to Tony Scott to Michael Bay continuum is always very interesting to me stylistically. Cause I feel like there is a through line weirdly there. Um, and this feels like far more down the line towards like, Oh, what if Michael Bay did a historical epic about Christopher Columbus. That is an interesting point. I also kind of see it along the lines of what you're talking about. It's like the prototype for these kind of movies that Ridley Scott has kept making. Like there's all of this slow motion. There's like these crazy huge sets that it's like, who gave you all this money? Right. To what end? (laughs) To what end? Like, you mentioned that this is some this was a movie that just looked like prestige at the time and looked huge. Yeah. And I specifically that slow-mo shot of him in the trailer, like walking onto the beach from the from the boats and for the first like five time. Like, it's in the movie, him just getting off that boat and slow-mo walking onto the beach. Um that we have to maybe talk about that trailer. We gotta talk about the we whole like versions of this trailer that there are we put we played a little bit of it after the theme music at the top of the show but like we should maybe go one more one more dive into the music especially because i know this is music like that has been in trailers before and it's and the voiceover just like all right i'm gonna play one more clip all right Sante, Fernando Ray, and Gerard Depardieu as Columbus. 
1492, Conquest of Paradise. Okay, literally everything about that is fucking it's, insane. Like everything is like massive and huge, and it's like Don LaFontaine at his most Don LaFontaineist. The voiceover. That's the voiceover guy. Okay, yeah. so you mentioned the crazy music. Do you know what this music cue is? No, please tell me. It's going to drive oh, me crazy. Oh, I know what this is. It is a band named Enigma. <gasps> this is Enigma. You're right. This was uh, the Return to Innocence people. Yeah. It, yes, Return to Innocence was their bigger hit, but this song is called Sadness or Sadness. It's spelled S-A-D-E-N-E-S-S. I like to think it's Shadeness. Ah! <laughs> um, <laughs> it was in a ton of trailers, though. I feel like I remember it from the trailer for The Beach, I'm pretty sure, although... It is definitely in, like, perfume ads, too. Like, yeah, this oh. was kind of inescapable from a marketing standpoint, but I feel like this was the first time that it was used because it was close to the original time of the music being released because I looked it up because this will sound crazy. We had, my brother had this Enigma album on CD. Like my Stop brother it. who was listening to like Vanilla Ice, Millie Vanilli. I love and it. And like dude music had the Enigma CD. That's amazing. So this was a staple of my house, but also the trailer was such a staple because, and I went back and did the research and figured out where this was. That tra- that teaser trailer of him walking on the beach was on the Wayne's World VHS. First of all, that's amazing. Wait, when you say you did your research, did you find a Wayne's World VHS? Okay, so this is one of my particular fascinations on YouTube. If I'm not watching like drag queen videos, I'm probably going through the rabbit hole of you can go on YouTube and look up like the trailer package that was at the start of VHS movies. So it's like, Get if you wanted to be like... There goes all of my free time, by oh, the way. If you wanted to look up VHS trailers from Sleepless in Seattle or whatever movie, I can guarantee you it is there. And it is a hoot. Because it's funny, because when we were talking about this, about why we both seem to remember the trailer for 1492 so vividly. And I, I'm still kind of positive. I mean, we can both be right. Um that this was on the VHS for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which I know I owned and watched a bajillion times. And like stylistically, they they dovetail pretty well. It's like this movie saw Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves and was like, oh, well, we'll just do that. To the extent that they both have Michael Wincott essentially in the same costume yep. playing the same role. In the same, yes. Yes. Uh, that's I wanted to wait for maybe to us talking about the movie, but like Michael Wincott as the through line for this and Mark Margolis as the through line from 1492 to the fountain, which is also about like Queen Isabella and, and you know, this period of conquistadors and history um, is wild to me. Like that's, that honestly makes me believe in like kismet and stuff like that, like way more than anything else that it's all movies are in the same extended universe something like that i don't know michael wincott it's funny because i only know him up until seeing this movie i only really knew him for two movies which was robin hood prince of thieves where he plays the like second in command to the sheriff of nottingham if you don't know who this actor is by name you know him by face because he has the like his cheekbones are like the most defined things they're like the mount rushmore of cheekbones they are um and the rest of his face is sort of like gaunt a little bit. And in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, he's the second in command of the Sheriff of Nottingham. He's the one who um, 
when the sheriff that movie is so funny so and stupid good. when the sheriff of nottingham is like i'll dig his eyes out with a spoon or i'll cut his heart out with a spoon and uh the guy just goes why a spoon and it's like there's this like weird little moment he's like because it's dull that's why like alan rickman if you think alan rickman was going over the top in harry potter with his line readings watch robin hood prince of thieves sometime it's really quite something um and then the other movie i know michael wincott from is strange days where he also plays the like creepy shitty bad guy like the guy who's aggressing um juliet lewis and it's pro you know we we assume through most of that movie that he's the killer and yada 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 but his face is so memorable because it is genuinely like give me the picture of eastern european villain with like this like model-esque cheekbone face it's like jonathan reese myers if he were a czech drug dealer from space from space yes okay there we go yeah um that's michael wincott so anyway this trailer was was kind of everywhere for me and i think for you too and i probably did i have to ask you yeah if you went back and watched the actual teaser that's just him walking on the beach no I highly suggest you do, and we'll try to post a link for the um, listeners. But if you watch it, it's like it's kind of weirdly in the Ridley Scott shadow of Alien. Because it's like, like in the future, we would be going to space. And then there's like the static in the to like break up the image. And it's like, but back in time, one man went across the earth. And it's like, this is a reach, you guys. It's hilarious. Oh my God. On the Santa Maria, no one can hear you scream. Um, <laughs> wow. That's wild. Okay. So we should also, before we get into the movie, movie, we need to talk about the kind of the ridiculousness of the fact that this movie was planned for the 500th anniversary of uh, Columbus sailing to the Americas. Like the fact that like that's going to line people up. Like we're going to celebrate 500 years of like at some point you stop celebrating anniversaries. They're like, I don't even know what to give somebody for the 500th anniversary. Like, is A blockbuster. it <laughs> or like an empire? Like, you know what I mean? Like I have gifted you, you know, a continent. Um, but it's, it's, it's weird. And we'll, you know, the ideas of a movie celebrating Columbus, like, are all through the discussion of this movie. But the fact that, like, oh, no, we're going to plan this movie for the 500th anniversary of Columbus sailing. And we only really know the year so well because of that rhyme, right? Like, we're not going to get Magna Carta, the Tony Scott or the whatever, the Ridley Scott movie um, historical epic Magna Carta. And we're going to plan it to whatever the anniversary for that is because, like... I don't know that one by heart. I know 1492 because that's when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And it's funny that like, Oh, the only real historical date that everybody knows is the one we're going to give the, you know, big 500 year. I don't even know what that is. Sesquicentennial. Um, I mean, it was a thing though, because there were multiple Christopher Columbus movies this year, including Christopher Columbus, the discovery, the one that was like lauded by all the Razzies. Go fuck yourself, Razzie. Oh, the, the one that was somehow worse than this. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there was like an animated one too. So it was like, this was part of the cultural consciousness. So you can also see how it was like, that would have been part of an Oscar campaign too. It's like, you you know. So let's talk about the movie. It's so over the top. It's so, like, it's such a, 
it okay first i want to start off by reading the prologue text that we get on this two minutes into the credits that have already like two minutes into the credits and the music at this point is so it's it's vangelis doing the score which we'll get to um there's so much bombast in this. It reminded me of the same year, actually, the beginning to Bram Stoker's Dracula. Which like, is great. Which is Francis Ford Coppola intentionally going as over the top as he can possibly go. And to to like to intentionally make you feel like the world has gone crazy. Whereas this, I think, is just trying to be bombastic, but like dead serious. So the prologue, as we see on the screen, says 500 years ago, Spain was a nation gripped by fear and superstition, ruled by the crown and a ruthless inquisition that persecuted men for daring to dream. All right, Ayn Rand, calm down. Um, And then the next screen goes, one man challenged this power. Driven by his sense of destiny, he crossed the sea of darkness in search of honor, gold, and the greater glory of God. (laughs) First of all, what? Like, it's... So much. And it's about Columbus, who at this point in 2018, we have all kind of agreed that like Christopher Columbus is a, you know, bad guy, bad man who like brought death and disease and and imperialism across the ocean with him. And but even in 1992, I was reading a lot of the reviews of this. And even in 1992, there was a sense of oh, like maybe Columbus is a more complicated figure than we know. Maybe like this idea of Christopher Columbus as the heroic, you know, founder of the Americas is worth tapping into a little bit and maybe like pulling back the veneer on that. Like we were just starting to investigate and interrogate these essentially myths of American creation at this point. And it was strange to see this movie that depicted imperialism as bad depicted everybody else who came with Columbus to the Americas were pillaging and raping and cutting off people's hands and, and, you know, lying and betraying the indigenous peoples and taking their gold back to Spain with them. All of that happens, but this movie's concession is like, yeah, yeah he was a good guy. Columbus himself felt really bad. Wasn't his fault. Yeah. Which is such a weird, like, hair to split. Yeah, like, he was an innovator, guys. No. And not only just, like, an, right, like, it was, he was, yes, he was the only one who who knew that we could, you know, go in this direction and sail towards the horizon. And it's weird that they kind of try and graft onto him the the idea of the world being round where at the very beginning he's talking with his little son and they're looking at the a boat you know sailing to the horizon and then it disappears and he shows the son this orange and he's like this is the world it is like this it is round and then they cut to like several years in the future where then the rounder theory has been has become more accepted but they try and credit columbus with that because of his orange because of his orange right but it's like it's like don't like I don't know. They they find a lot of ways to puff this guy up. And then yeah, and even for a movie that's already pretty hagiographic, it is like to the extreme, like drawing these conclusions about him. And every shot of Depardieu is this sort of like golden haired, you know, on um, you know, chest. Like, yeah. And then on the boat, he's teaching people how to navigate by the North Star. He is a, you know, he is a man of science and a man of valor, all of this kind of stuff. And 
Armand Asante is back in Spain, sort of like plotting against him as his like Salieri figure, maybe. And it's all it's all a lot to deal with. It's a lot. And it's long. I mean, one thing I do appreciate the movie for is it spends so much time in the Americas because he's spent years there. And it kind of, especially with Michael Wincott's more villainous character deals with like kind of the psychological toll of, yeah, he plays Columbus's like in the movie. Essentially he plays Columbus's uh, enemy, his rival, um, what would you call him? What like he's like a local governor or something. He's a his vice enemy in commerce. Yeah. Um, and so he's essentially like the the villain of the middle portion of the movie. And everybody goes kind of fucking crazy over that. I mean, it made me think about a movie that's far more interesting. Um, did you see Zama this year, the Lucretia Martel? I did not, not yet. It's a far more interesting look at, you know, what you sacrifice by committing to an impossible goal um, or ascribing like, uh-huh. I am the person who is going to do this, at least in terms of imperialism and colonialism. Um, but that was at least something I found interesting about the movie. I think it, again, to the point of it tries to make him seem like this like marvelous, wonderful figure. Like there's this whole bell raising sequence that's almost entirely in slow motion. It feels like the sequence is 20 minutes long where it's almost like it, he's framed as this God figure, you know, bringing the impossible to these indigenous people. Yeah. It's, it, it's a lot of the same for two and a half hours with not a whole lot of interesting layers to peel back. Agreed. It's in, it's, it's interesting to contrast a movie like this with something like the lost city of Z or sorry, the lost city of Zed. Um, or what was the black and white foreign language film nominee that's on the tip of my tongue? Embrace of the serpent. Yes. Thank you. From a few years ago. And in that both of those movies actually have kind of a narrative thrust to them in talking about somewhat similar themes. Whereas this is just about puffing up this man. And it just feels like it's a it's a movie of its time. And it's weird that, like, even in 1992, we weren't ready to properly interrogate that. But I don't know. It feels very old. It feels very Bridge on the River Kwai to me. It feels very... Um, or it's like it's reaching for that. But it also feels like because it is so similar to the things that a lot of people complain about with Ridley Scott's movies, like this could also just be released today <laughs> because yeah. it, I was so struck by how it's like this is a good 10, 15 years before the type of movies Ridley Scott was making. Like I'm thinking of Kingdom of Heaven or even Robin Hood that it's like these movies are all the same. He's been having the same like fetishism yeah for decades yes. now making the same movie. And he keeps like and it's and he makes enough movies that they're not the only movies he makes so it feels less like an obsession but like he still may has made a ton of these yeah. movies. And this one's the first in a way. Yeah. Wild. Um what else did you think? What did we think of uh, Sigourney Weaver in this movie playing Queen okay. Isabella? I'm glad that we are giving her her own segment because the costumes she is serving in this movie. 
Holy shit. One of them looks like Humpty Dumpty and I don't even care. <laughs> Wait, is that the one where she's, it looks like she's, uh, she's dressed like a Fabergé egg? Yes. Yeah. Where she's like walking in into the, the ceremony. ceremony yeah. And she's walking into the room with Columbus as like, he's her like escort or whatever. And yes, she's dressed up like with a headpiece and a breastplate and it, and she looks like she is encrusted in jewels. Yeah. It's like there is she, the dress is just a wall. Like someone has an ornate piece it of drywall with a, with a hole in it and she sticks her head yes. through it. She looks like she's in one of her pods in Alien, like where she's going to ride out the rest of the, of the trip. Um, and they'll, they'll find her in 200 years. They convinced her to get into the costume by saying it was the escape pod from the movie. Yes. The very first time we see her too, she's not in anything quite so elaborate, but she's in this sort of embroidered brocade kind of gown that is so intricately embroidered that it looks like animal print. And she has like this really... Ana- and I literally was just like Jungle Kitty, Bibi Zahara Benet, like Rakatatiti <laughs> Tata, like as she walks in, because like I almost want to cut that music to the first shot of her in this movie. Joe, don't um, get me. She looks don't fantastic. Don't me an inch, I'll take a mile here. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, she also has like this anachronistic 90s crinkle hair too. I don't know what's happening, but the thing about Sigourney Weaver, it is, it's very like, it's like the, the last scenes of working. Yes. (laughs) She just like uh, walked from set to set. Um, the, okay. So we're talking about these costumes and we're kind we're making fun of it, but also at the same time, they look fucking amazing. Like the work that was put into How is this not a costume nomination? Yeah. That's a good point. What were the, the costume uh, design nominees that year? As I go back into this. Okay. So this is maybe a good transition to our, into the Oscar race because this costume win, I think is the fucking coolest Oscar win ever. Wow. There have been some good. Or, costume it's wins. up there. It's up there. Okay. This, do you know the winner this year without looking at it right now? 1992. It's a movie we mentioned. Is it Dracula? Is it Bram Stoker? It Dracula? is Dracula. Yeah. Aiko Ishioka's Dracula costume. Yeah. They're really so rad. Yeah. And like, that would be the kind of thing now that I feel like we would all be stumping for. Like, it's so cool and would never and like, win. Oh, it'll like, never it feels happen. like such a ballsy choice. And like a Dracula is, it has three Oscars, I think three or four yeah. and even more nominations. Granted, I ride hard for this movie, but I just think it's kind of like rad that that movie was an Oscar player. It won three of the four nominations that it that it had. It won for costume design. It won for makeup, which also like making up Gary Oldman yeah, in that movie is like fully well deserved. And then sound effects editing, which that's that is a crazy fucking movie, and I love it. I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's like very like if if Coppola didn't have the Godfather movies, like it would be maybe like it would be my favorite movie of any other filmography um yeah the costume design nominations this year were a good mix of that it was your traditional your howard's end your enchanted april which is not to say anything bad about them but like those are your more uh you would more expect your costume dramas to have costume design nominations malcolm x was that year and then toys which is another interesting albert walski who i previously spoke ill of on our ask the dust episode (laughs) yeah Ruth Carter for Malcolm X, who hopefully will be our winner this year for Black Panther. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Imagine. Imagine. God, let's start stumping for that right now. Um, Yeah. The 1992 Oscars, there are a few places where I feel like 
something like 1492 could have shown up but didn't it feels like even if i feel like the cinematography is over the top that's sort of what the oscars are there for sometimes right. is to reward the most you know most cinematography even production design too our art direction i think that it was still called at this time like a lot of these sets are built like and there's huge stuff going on that like was i guess the stain of this movie so bad or was it just big enough of a bomb that they didn't want to go there it was a pretty huge bomb like financially right yes. i think it made it made less than 10 million dollars i think it made seven or eight million stateside um but even so i mean i think we're both on the same page that there could have been a worthy nomination in here somewhere like costume design Costumes, yes. Um, yeah, I think you're right about the art direction because the sets really were quite something. Again, winner that year was Howard's End, which is a lovely movie, and I'm not going to say anything bad about it. That was the one nomination that Dracula didn't win, um, but they were nominated for art direction, which phenomenal. Toys, I've never seen Toys, so I can't really speak to that. That was but I, another VHS staple in at least my grandmother's oh, house. Oh, that trailer. Nuts. Yeah, it is. Though that's that's the trailer where it's Robin Williams in the field of grass, um, just sort of make like riffing on the word toys and saying really nothing about the movie. And it made me so intrigued for this movie. And then everything else that I ever have heard about the movie oh, it's not tells that. me that it wasn't that. It's like this strange science fiction. Yeah. Joan um Cusack is his sister, but she's also a robot. I think Robin Wright is the love interest. I could not tell you the plot. Was it the Tomorrowland of its time? Kind of. <laughs> and that was Barry it's Levinson, a strange right? little movie. Huh? Barry Levinson directed that, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, the other nominees in Art Direction in 92 were Chaplin and Unforgiven. I don't remember a thing about Chaplin. I saw it so long ago. Um I'm not sure whether the sets were that great. Were they like recreations of sets from movies he made? One would imagine. I have not seen Chaplin. I should also confess that this is my first Best Picture winner that I haven't seen, which is Unforgiven. You know what? Here's what I will tell you. Are you not a Westerns person? I am not a Westerns person. Neither am I. See Unforgiven. It's more interesting than you think. If even if if you're not a westerns person, if you're not a Clint Eastwood person, which I also don't think I am, see it. It's more interesting. I have had no hesitations about Unforgiven. I think it's just that Unforgiven is like always there, and I take it yeah. for granted that I will eventually see this movie. I only saw it for the first time. Yeah, I only saw it for the first time a few years ago. So to give the listeners a little bit of context, so the 1992 Oscars were this was the year that Unforgiven won Best Picture. Um, Howard's End, as we mentioned, was a Best Picture nominee. A Few Good Men was a Best Picture nominee of that year. That was sort of, this wasn't quite an Indies versus Hollywood year, but like A Few Good Men was definitely like the Hollywood movie for sure. Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, Demi Moore. It had all the big stars. It had everything. Um, And then up against that was Howard's End, this big merchant ivory costume drama. The Crying Game, which was also from the UK or from Ireland, right? Um, a huge story that Neil year Jordan. because of the twist of it. And I saw, I've seen the 1992 Oscar ceremony recently, and like the ratio with which the the frequency with which Billy Crystal will throw out a bajillion crying game jokes that are, if not fully like 
homophobic, transphobic, like they're all Jesus. on a line and they're all real uncomfortable. Um, and there are so many cutaways to like an unimpressed Jay Davidson in the audience that are like kind of amazing. Um, and then the fifth best picture nominee that year was Scent of a Woman, which is also just like big movie star driven Al Pacino. That's what he won his Oscar for. So I'm not sure where in here 1492 builds a story for itself, even if it isn't a bomb. Because a part of me, one of the things I thought while watching this movie was if this movie does have Oscar ambitions, and maybe it doesn't, maybe it's just Ridley Scott trying to like out bombast everybody. But like what it made me think of Last of the Mohicans, which was also 1992 and also didn't really get i don't know if it got any it won sound oh it won it did win sound it didn't get score which but is that's i think it's only nomination it, the fact that it wasn't even nominated for score drives me crazy because that's one of my favorite scores of all time well and that's the one where i'm like why okay so is it vangelis or is it vangelis because i was thinking it was vangelis this whole time and i was either gonna do an evangeline from princess and the frog joke or a miss <laughs> vangie joke but i guess it's vangelis no i could be wrong like i it's, i don't know where i do have that in my head that that's how it's pronounced but i don't know where i got that from so um i'm not sure but um, either way, but I mean, you're talking about a previous winner, someone of prestige, and they couldn't even get in for this movie. Although uh, he got the Golden Globe nomination. Yeah. Which sort of makes sense. The big, um, however we pronounce Vangelis, Vangelis, uh, claim to fame Ms. is, Vangelis. of course, Miss Vangie. Miss Vangie. Uh, Miss Vangelis. <laughs> Uh, Oscar winner for the score for Chariots of Fire, which is the big, unforgettable, like, you've heard it. That one. Um, So, and again, in the very sort of like Oscar buzzy kind of way, after a score that um, sort of definitional and iconic, everything you do from there on out that holds the possibility that you could do that again. Yeah. So it's John Williams. Now for the rest of his career, he's the star Wars guy. And so you just get more attention that way. I think Andre Alexander Desplat has, has proved that way. I think we have this sort of handful of composers who, you know, your Hans Zimmer's, your um, Thomas Newman's, your Danny Elfman's who, once you've made your mark as having written an iconic score or two, Everything you do from there on out, you're at least going to get a look. You know what I mean? You're at least going to get. Um, here's an interesting best original score nominee from that year. Jerry Goldsmith for Basic Instinct. That's a great score, though. I just recently watched Basic oh, Instinct is. for the first time, not on TNT. Um, <laughs> totally different experience. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that movie's fucking great. <laughs> it's terrible, but also great. That movie getting a Best Editing nomination is one of my favorite Oscar nominations of all time. I think that's pretty cool. I mean, like, I, again, as I said at the top of the episode, I think this is a really cool year. And part of the reason why I'm surprised that 1492 couldn't get in anywhere is you see a lot of studio fare. Granted, you see a lot of studio fare that made a lot of money. Like some of the other movies we haven't mentioned are Aladdin, Batman Returns, The Bodyguard, A River Runs Through It. And those were all the top box office movies of that year. And the Oscars found a place for almost all of them. Bodyguard got... Bodyguard got 
a song nomination. Two. Two. Just not for uh, I Will Always Love You because that was not an original song. Um, but yeah, basically. Also, instinct- another really cool nomination win this year is Death Becomes Her winning visual effects. Yeah, for sure. That's rad. Um, but yeah, you're right. Aladdin got uh, got a Oscar for song and also score, I want to say. Yes. Fugit Men was the number five box office movie of that year. Bodyguard was number seven. Basic Instinct was in the top 10. Unforgiven was just out of the top 10. Unforgiven made $100 million. Um, Bram Stoker's Dracula made $82 million. That fucked up movie. That's so amazing. Um, and then you look at something like Last of the Mohicans made 75, Son of a Woman 63, Crying Game 62. Like, it's become such cliche to sort of like look at old box office years and be like, look at the kinds of movies that we used to go and see in droves. But this um, is like the interesting year of that <laughs> where it's like the movies are actually like kind of interesting to think of like Bram Stoker's Dracula making that much money, which if you adjust it for inflation, just imagine like doubling it. Basically that's a shit ton of money for that weird ass movie to make. And yet the box office top five for that year has three sequels. So already it was like coming because it was home yeah. alone Two, lethal weapon three and Batman Returns. I love Batman Returns. Um, I think, and I, you know, for somebody who loves Home Alone as much as I do, I think the second one is pretty crap. Um, I don't remember anything about Lethal Weapon 3. Um, but, you know, things were obviously going in a direction. You know Hand That Rocks the Cradle was the number 12 movie of that year? No, but I buy it. That's so cool. I love the Hand That Rocks the Cradle. I'm so sad that Curtis Hansen is no longer with us. Um, 1992 was a good year. 1992 is one of those formative years for me where I started becoming aware of, I think it happened in sort of like stages for me, but 92 was definitely a year where I started becoming aware of genres of movies that I hadn't ever really paid attention to. Hand That Rocks the Cradle, I saw on VHS at my cousin's house. And if if it wasn't the first R-rated movie I ever saw front to back, it was one of the first ones. And I remember like, being so unsettled by that movie and so sort of like, Oh no, this is, I remember having the thought of I'm too young to be watching. this. <laughs> I was 12 at the time. Too much for me. It was kind of, it was too much for me. And I remember like, even like white men can't jump at the time, which wasn't, you know, there was like swearing and, and sort of like sex scenes that weren't super explicit, but like, I just remember 92 being a big year for me. I think I leveled up a little bit. I feel like 92 was a formative year for me and that I like became hyper aware and fascinated by all different like type of movie marketing things like trailers at the beginning of VHS movies, posters, like just this, the narrative I was being fed by not even seeing the movie of like what something was. Cause I distinctly remember being terrified of the hand that rocks the cradle poster Oh, sure. Where she's got the knife. I think she's got a knife, doesn't she? No, it's like it's a family photo that's ripped in half and the photo's uh, in black and white. But Rebecca de, Bourne, Rebecca de Mornay is in color, like in the middle of the tear. That's what it is. It's the tear in the photo. Absolutely. God. And again, like this trailer being a specific one that I remember at the time. For, for sure. 1492. Yeah. It's also like Gerard Depardieu was one of those like weird first actors that I remember knowing who they were, probably because I feel like Green Card was one of those movies that like I knew what it was, but didn't watch it as a kid because we had it at home. 
I remember hearing like I'm like my aunt had the VHS for a river runs through it. So I would watch that. And I remember like being very aware of movies like, I don't know, like Hoffa was 1992 or far and away. I had another aunt who like watched so watched so many Tom Cruise movies. So I was like very aware of far and away. I remember being specifically interested in sister act and house sitter as a tandem. And I don't know whether they like opened right next to each other. They very well may have. Um, But I remember being like, Oh, sister act and, House Sitter. I want to see these movies because I like Whoopi Goldberg and I like Goldie Hawn and I like knew these things about myself at that age. Um, My cousin Vinny was that year. Sneakers was that year. The Mighty Ducks was that year. Like that's the cutting edge was that year. So it was definitely that kind of middle, you know, ground going from one thing to another. I should do a whole thing on the movies of 1992. I honestly think 1992 is great. It's a great year. It's definitely a great year. That was the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. Um, so, like, it was, like, hugely influential. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so it's safe to say this is still, because we've talked about, I remember specifically in an earlier episode talking about my first Oscar consciousness year. This is still pre-Oscar consciousness for you. Uh, not quite. I remember at this point of my life, I would read about the Oscars without being able to like stay up to watch them. I remember the morning before or the morning after the 91 Oscars and reading about like silence of the lambs sweeps the top categories and being like, Ooh, and I hadn't seen Silence of the lambs yet, but I knew it was this like scary movie with a scary character. Um, and I think 92 was the same thing. That was when I would maybe watch like the first hour of it and then get sent to bed. Um, it wasn't till, 94 that I really like that everything snapped into place and I became like a follower Mm -hmm. of the Oscars and that sort of happened in a few stages but definitely by 92 I was aware of the Oscars I knew that I remember I remember a lot of like lead up to the Oscars a lot of like the Siskel and Ebert special or some like local news would be doing some special I remember knowing having the sense that like Howard's End was the stuffy British favorite. And of course now watching it, it's like Howard's end is probably my favorite of the nominees that year. Um, And so I definitely remember the conversation around it. I certainly remember everything about Marissa Tomei winning. My cousin Vinny was probably um, one of the few movies, maybe the only movie nominated in a major category that year um, that I had seen, like obviously Aladdin. Um, But so I was definitely aware of the conversation around it and had seen hardly any of the movies. Although a few good men's one of my all time favorite movies and a few good men is like one of the movies that made me a crazy movie fan. And that being such a big part of this year's Oscars was definitely a thing. I definitely knew, um, knew everything about what was happening with a few good men. Although that movie might not have been until the next year because I don't, I didn't see it in theater certainly. And it got released in the United States in December. So probably wasn't until that next year that I became an obsessive about a few good men. Yeah. That's how we lived back then. We were, we were children. We didn't see <laughs> things in theaters. We saw things. We had to wait a whole year for something to we come sure to VHS. Did. It was probably, honestly, it was probably that summer of 1993 because with a few good men, I talk, I don't think I've told this story on the podcast before. I would, that was back when pay-per-view would have um, 
the new like new release movies that you could order on pay-per-view and they played at they weren't on demand they played at intervals if you wanted to watch a few good men on pay-per-view you would have to pay for it and then it would start at four and seven and ten you know what i mean so yeah, the technology had not advanced <laughs> right so this so these channels that you would uh if you hadn't paid for them yet, the movies were still playing on these channels. They were just scrambled. They were scrambled like the porno channels were scrambled, right? Yeah. And so I had seen A Few Good Men on VHS, and I knew that I had loved it. Probably seen it a few times on VHS, but didn't own it. And so what I would do once I knew that I loved it, um, I would turn on the scrambled pay-per-view channel and just listen to it. And almost like like do would do other things and would like, you know, I don't even know what else I was doing, playing with toys, doing homework, whatever, um, and would listen to A Few Good Men. And so I knew that movie by heart like you would know a, a record, like you would know a, rec- uh, a music recording. And that probably explains a lot about me. Actually. It certainly explains a lot why I adore you. I love that story. <laughs> So anyway, um, do we have anything else to talk about 1492 before we get into the IMDb game? Um, I don't. I think I don't I have a ton. Frank Magella is in the movie. You don't really see him very much. He has a very sort of. I'm pretty sure what you heard already of Frank Langella in the trailer clip we played is all you see of Frank Langella. Um, back onto the Miss Vangelis thread, I just want to say that. Armand Asante has the hardest wig line I have ever seen in my life in this movie. Um, it's great. Can we talk just very quickly about Gerard Depardieu's accent? Because it, it got mentioned in a lot of the reviews at the time where like you couldn't understand a lot of the dialogue because Depardieu still was very, you know, it was a very popular actor in, you know, even in America. And yet he still struggled with, the American accent. So he's a French actor speaking English, playing an Italian sailing for Spain. And like, it's all, it's, it's always fascinates me to watch a movie and realize how much the anglicized version of world history has seeped in with all of us, where we're so used to movies about world history, where people of different nationalities are being played by English accented actors. And we've accepted that. Like we've accepted that that's what history sounds like. History sounds like Laurence Olivier history sounds like, you know, old British people speaking in British accents or like old British people playing Russians, but speaking English in a Russian dialect. Right. To the point where Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, a movie we've already mentioned in this podcast, got a lot of attention for Kevin Costner speaking flat American accented English in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And people were like, that doesn't sound right because anything else, you can be as anachronistic as you want to. You just have to be anachronistic as a British person. So watching this, I remember being like seeing somebody speak English with a French accent playing an Italian in this movie is as strange. Like they could have cast Ken Watanabe in the same role. And it's, it's that it's as strange, right? Because like, it doesn't matter He's not Italian. He's not authentic. He's not speaking Italian. He's speaking English. But because we've accepted this one genre of fakeness when it comes to movies about history, everything else that is not that sounds crazy. And it's like, it's that's, you know, that's the lingering impact of British imperialism, if nothing else, right? 
No, I no, I agree with you. I'm I'm just trying not to chuckle remembering some of these line readings. And maybe part of it is just that as you mentioned, Christopher Columbus was like by way of one country, by way of another, by way of another, traveling to another. Right. So that was how they just kind of explained the ludicrousness of the dialect here. Um yeah, he sounds very silly. I still I still can't get past, I mean, maybe to do a hard pivot, my final note, the idea of sexy Christopher Columbus yes. that this movie tries to sell us. Very like, much so. It's weird that they don't give him a love interest in the Americas. Like, I'm glad. For I'm glad this that era they don't. Movie. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, like, I think the thing that makes us note that is that there's almost no human element to this very long movie very true it's very true it's there's like a psychological element for some of the things that i brought up but it's not humanized it's not and it's not really brought home like i use the comparison to zama loud and the visuals are so bombastic they're really once they hit america it's it doesn't stop i don't know like I love the scene where they land on the beach. And of course, like you get the, you know, he's walking slow-mo through the surf and then drops to his knees and kisses the sand and all that. And then though he like looks around and he's like, I claim this, you know, I call this San Salvador and I claim this for Spain. And I'm like the balls to do that when you're only on the beach. <laughs> like, yeah, at least take a, like a circumference trip around. I don't know. Yeah, um, like go th- into like, see if you can find any resources. Do you want to claim this? Are they you sure? might've been filming a reality show on the other end of that Island. You don't know. Yeah. Um, that'd be a fun parody actually. Just like Columbus discovering. Yeah. Christopher Columbus walking yeah. into <laughs> naked and afraid. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think just, this is one of those movies where you watch the trailer and you know exactly what kind of bad movie this is, where it's just like, Ooh, what if top gun, but Columbus. Yeah. Um, and, and one of those things where it's like, if you're talking in terms of Oscar, it's like confusing faux seriousness for substance. Yeah. Also, if you look back in the annals of like best picture, or whatever, this kind of movie hadn't been a hit with the Oscars in decades. Like you even have to go back to like, Lawrence of Arabia, Bridge on the River Kwai. Like, well, and, and, and you've brought this up before. Like, we still have this leaning into costume dramas as kind of this sure thing that they haven't been for some time. Although in 1992, like, it was a good year for costume dramas. It was, that was especially if you consider Bram Stoker's Dracula one, which I think there's a fair argument there. But yeah, um, yeah, it's just like kind of borrowing this status quo idea of what's an Oscar movie and it's yeah. just not paying off, at least when you're selling the movie. Exactly. All right. You want to do a quick IMDb game before we shove off? I am here for IMDb game. So to remind the listeners, the IMDb game, we pick an actor, we quiz each other, we try and guess the four movies that if you look up an actor on IMDb, they are the known four movies, um, the four movies that they think um an actor is most known for imdb being a tricky little minx their algorithm for what those four movies are is often unpredictable and fun and that's why we play the game um chris do you want to start off do you want to give me one 
Yeah, I got one for you. Okay, so we've mentioned this particular movie a few times. Didn't really go in depth to it. It's a great little romantic comedy. Green Card, starring Gerard Depardieu. And for the first IMDb game of this episode, I will be choosing for Mr. Joe Reed, his romantic co-star, Andy McDowell. This is a good one. I don't think I've ever done Andy McDowell in an IMDb game. This is... I love Andy McDowell. You and my friend Jeff should meet because my friend Jeff is the biggest Andy McDowell fan I've ever met. I love her in movies. I love her very odd Twitter account. You should also meet Guy Lodge because Guy Lodge is also a huge Andy McDowell fan. I was at a trivia night with Guy one time at the moment that he got a Twitter reply from Andy McDowell. And it was quite the moment. Did he ascend into a higher plane of being? He kind of did. Um, All right. So. Andy McDowell's four IMDb movies. I'm going to guess Groundhog Day. Yes. Okay. Um, oh, I want it to be Magic Mike Double XL. Is that a guess? Is it? Yes. No, that is your first no. My first strike. Um, I'm trying to think of like popular. She felt like she was in a ton of romantic comedies. Multiplicity? No. All right. What are the okay? So I'm going to start giving you some hints. Uh, the two of them should be very obvious. We Give have me talked the years about one. I've of them. gotten two wrong, so I get years once I've gotten two wrong. 1989, Sex Lies and Videotape. Yes. 1994, the year after Groundhog Day. Same genre. Oscar player. Oscar player. Oscar nominee. Not for her. Yeah. Best picture nominee. Oh. Really? Soon to be a Hulu. I'm pretty sure this is a Best Picture nominee. Um, soon to be a Hulu series coming from Mindy Kaling. 1994, Forrest Gump, Pulp Fiction, Quiz Show, Shawshank, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Yes. Mindy Kaling's doing Four Weddings and a Funeral for Hulu. Yeah, that's amazing. Isn't that that's so gonna exciting. Be yes. All right. And the final um, one. And the this one is a little tough. 1991. Huge bomb. Starring Bruce Willis. Oh. Hudson Hawk? Yes. She's in Hudson Hawk. I've never seen that she movie. She is in Hudson Hawk. All right. And it is in her top four IMDb. That is a challenging IMDb. Okay. I'm going to give you... I went on the uh, Ridley Scott train Um, and I'm going to give you uh, a star from the movie aforementioned from the the aforementioned movie, Thelma and Louise, Gina Davis. Okay. Gina Davis, Thelma and Louise. Yes. Beetlejuice. No, that's insane. A league of their own. No. What? I know. All right. This is why the IMDb algorithm is garbage. Um, So your years are. 1986, 1996, and 1999. I'm never going back to IMDb for this League of Their Own Erasure. Um, <laughs> uh, is there any TV? Nope, no TV, no voiceover. Okay. Um, I already have Thelma and Louise. Long Kiss Goodnight. Yes. Awesome. That's the 1996. Um, I love that movie. I love that movie. The Accidental Tourist. No. She got her Oscar that's for that. Okay, so that's my three. I know. Um, yes. All right. So the two that you missed, one of them is, it's not a voiceover role, but it's opposite a CGI character. Uh, uh, Stuart Little. Yes. And then the other one is from a very 
notable director. She was the female lead, but the male lead was somebody she was dating at the time or maybe married to. Is it Cutthroat Island? Nope. Um, it's a director who's sort of... That's Rennie Harlan. <laughs> That's Rennie Harlan. Um, no, it was the, the actor was who she was married to at the time. 1986. Um, Sutherland? It's a very... It's a director with a very specific vibe, and this movie, like, basically helped to define that vibe. Um, What's the genre? Horror. Oh, 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 they were dating. Is it The Fly? Yeah, it's the fly. I always forgot she dated Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. Listen, um, I am all here for... Uh, I will keep the fly and I will keep Long Kiss Goodnight because that movie is awesome. But th- it is outright offensive that her top four does not include A League of Their Own. And I that's know. all I'm going to say about this. I would like to move on yeah. because I am angry. Yeah, Beetlejuice. <laughs> all right, do we have time for one more? One more piece? Yes, we do. Okay, right. so this is, uh, I have a long segue. I started with Andy McDowell. This year, did you see her tiny, tiny movie, Love After Love? No, but I want to. You absolutely should. Listeners should absolutely seek out that movie. She's wonderful in it. She stars with Chris O'Dowd. The year of 1992, our best actor... Winner Al Pacino co-starred with a certain Chris O, Chris O'Donnell, who is your new IMDb person. I love this roundabout way we've gotten here. This is fantastic. All right, um, so Chris O'Donnell. His Chris four O'Donnell. IMDb movies are and no television. No television. Is it one of the Batman's that he's in? Yes. Which one? Forever. No. And Robin. Okay. Yes. Um, Batman and Robin. Is Scent of a Woman one of them? Yes. Okay. Um, oh, is it that one with Renee Zellweger? No. Where she's a bride? No. Whatever that one's called. Um, oh, I want it to be Fried Green Tomatoes, but I know he's not in that enough. It is not Fried Green um, Tomatoes. What are the years for the other two? 1993 and 2000. 2000? What was Chris O'Donnell doing in 2000? 1993. So after Scent of a Woman. Right after Scent of a Woman. I will say this is a, it is not a romantic comedy, but it is a Disney live action movie with a large famous male ensemble. It has since been remade and bombed a few times in recent years. Newsies. Um, Is it a musical? No. A large male ensemble, and it's bombed upon remake. Yes, it would. This is not like an original. It has a source novel that is a classic. Also had a Brian Adams original song. What? Not Don Juan DeMarco. No. Um, I have no idea. The Three Musketeers. Oh Jesus! Of course, he's uh. D'Artagnan, right? Yes. Okay, so okay. the final one. It is 2000. It is definitely a B-movie disaster movie. Oh. But I think it actually like made money because it was like one of those pieces of shit that they drop in like August, I think. And it's like, it makes money because it's the only new thing opening. Like Natural Disaster? Uh, yes. <laughs> not like disaster, like... Not like a tornado. No. It, the disaster is not coming to them. They go to the disaster. 
they go to the disaster. Is it one of the volcano movies? No, it's not a volcano. It is a is mountain climbing movie. Oh, a mountain. Oh, vertical something. Vertical limit. Vertical limit. Yes. Wow. That's a weird lineup for, for Chris O'Donnell. That's why I chose it. I am also going for a young, handsome man of the 1990s. Uh, Ridley Scott's film after 1492 was the 1996 Handsome Boys on a Boat movie, White Squall. Squall. One of which, uh, one of those Handsome Boys on the Boat, the one I directed most of my attention to, was Ryan Phillippe. So why don't you guess? Yeah. Um, Any TV? Nope. Okay. Crash. Yes. I know what you did last summer. No. What? Cruel Intentions. Yes. Okay. Um... Fuck else is Ryan Phillippe in? Um, There's one on here that's making me laugh because it is honestly, it's your bet noir. It is your your recurring enemy in the IMDb. Oh my God. I feel like I have several because I'm not very good at those. Um, uh, Okay, so I have two. I get so hung up on what's not there. Um, Because I'm like, I know what you did last summer. Okay, give me. He's the lead in one of them. He's the lead in one of them. It was from an Oscar nominated. What's that? Antitrust. No. Did I give you years? No. 2000 and 2001. Okay. One of them is from an Oscar nominated person of some kind. One of them is from an Oscar winning, I want to say, screenwriter who then leveled up to a director. Yes. Oscar winning screenwriter leveled up to a director. This movie's kind of junky. Um, but I think it's kind of fun. It's sort of an ensemble. It's him and this other guy playing sort of low life criminals. I feel like I know what this is. Um, oh, and his male co-star was in the movie that this writer director won his Oscar for. Is it Steven Gagan? No. Can you give me earlier? Christopher McQuarrie. Oh my God. Who I've already shaded on this podcast um, is what was that called? I can remember it. Cause it was like trash, right? It was, um, yes, it was trash. Something about a gun. Yeah. The, the way, way of the way of the, the, way gun. Of the gun. So the other one, this is your nemesis that we're waiting for. Best picture nominee. 2001 ensemble. Oh my God! It's easy to forget. Gosford Park. I am just from here on out. I am going to just say Gosford Park to every person. I feel like you're just going through the Gosford Park lineup to me every time. What if that's what I was doing? Finding different ways to make an excuse to put somebody for make the listeners reminded of the fact that I can't remember Gosford Park exists. If you've never seen the the poster for Gosford Park, by the way, it is a um list of it's names. a list of names sort of stabbed to the back of somebody with a pen um and it's like 12 names and i honestly could just do a different one for each week and we'd be here we'd be covered probably for the rest of the year so well done on that on ryan Phillippe. that's all we got for 1492 you guys this was uh we got 
This is a fun episode. Definitely. Um, if you want more This Head Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, tell us where the listeners can find you and your work. Sure. Today and every day, you can find me at decider.com. I am the senior writer there. Um, but uh, all of my coworkers do really good work covering film and television. You should check me out there. I'm also on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. All right. And I am on Twitter as well at Chris V. File. That's V-F-E-I-L. Um, you can also read me at The Film Experience, where I'll be musing over soundtracks and a whole lot more. We'd like to thank, uh, again, uh, Kyle Cummings for our fantastic artwork that we adore, and Dave Gonzalez for all of his technical guidance in helping us. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you find your podcasts. A five-star review would be super appreciated. Um let us know what you love about the podcast, whether it's me not knowing that Gosford Park exists or um, <laughs> Armand DeSante's hairline. Are you going on some long ass diatribe about some sort of thing or another? Yeah. Tell us uh, what movies you want to hear us cover. Um, anything helps to get us recognized on iTunes. Um, tell us what movies you watched on uh, pay-per-view scrambled television. So long as it's not pornography. Yeah. Actually, tell us about pornography. Yeah, tell us whatever VHS trailers that you remember. Yes, actually, that's a good one. Give us a five-star review and talk about VHS trailers that you remember from VHSs that you watched. Or posters that scare the shit out of you. I would love to hear that. Yeah, Um, And that's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz. Everyone's a winner, baby. That's so loud. You never play.